Okay. So we are continuing with our Kingdom of God series. Uh, since I'm now taking up most of the back page with these outlines, I'm going to make a half-page insert for the bulletin that will have the 15 chapter titles. Our series theme verse, Matthew 6.10, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth that is in, is in heaven. So today I've added a note that this is from what's called the Sermon on the Mount. Because today we've been looking at the idea that the Bible communicates with biblical imagery or word pictures. And that's one of four things that we're going to teach about that are designed to get uh, to answer the question, how to read your Bible for all it's worth. Uh, these, are, these are areas that most, most born-again Christians, most Bible-believing Christians are not taught uh, how to read their Bible, including these tools. And so uh, his, uh, we're going to look at historical narrative in weeks to come and t at types and case laws. But we've been looking, the last several weeks, we've been looking at word pictures or biblical imagery that start in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and that go all the way through the Bible to Revelations 21 and 22. Okay? Everyone following me on that? So, again, we've been looking at uh, word pictures that start in... Uh, turn me up a little bit, can we, so I can outdo the babies. So, uh, we've been looking at... I uh, uh, love to hear babies in the church. It's a good thing. Uh, and babies cry. They do. That's what they do. So, um, again, we've been looking at uh, word pictures, a dozen or so of them, that start in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And last week, we, we just took one word picture, uh, the idea of mountains. Genesis 1 starts on a mountain. Eden was on a mountain, and uh, it wasn't the highest place on the mountain, but out of Eden and out of the mountain came four rivers that went to the ends of the earth, and, and uh, water flows downhill. So it had to be on a mountain. So, uh, uh, and of course... Uh, uh, Ezekiel 28 says, you were in Eden, the mountain of God, and so forth, and the garden of God. So um, we last week we traced, uh, if you look at Roman numeral 3 on your notes, A through J, we traced uh, mountains uh, from Eden, and we got as far as Moses viewing the land in Deuteronomy uh, from Mount Nebo, the same mountain that Abraham viewed the land from uh, before he died. Now, uh, I, want, I want to just start at the bottom of your page one today. If you, you know, I gave you all that top part. If anyone missed, you can uh, review it for yourself. And I want to remind you, on the very back bottom of page two is the address for podcast. And they're all available for free as podcast. So you can catch up with the Kingdom of God series. Now, uh, this is going to be important for understanding Matthew. So we're going to do one last mountain scene in Deuteronomy. So, and, and I just want to kind of remind you or highlight that we've only covered mountains in the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses known as the Pentateuch or the books of Moses, sometimes just called Moses, uh, sometimes called Torah, depends on the context because Torah can refer to the whole Jewish scriptures or it can refer to just the books of Moses, depending on the context. But, um, in Deuteronomy 11.29, it says, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Now flip over, and we'll read Deuteronomy 27.11-15. through 15. 
Moses also charged the people on that day, saying, When you cross the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. For the curse, these shall stand on Mount Ebal, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. The Levites shall then answer and say to all the men of Israel with a loud voice, Cursed is the man who makes an idol or a molten image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of craftsmen, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer, Amen. Now, if you read Deuteronomy uh, 28, 1 through 68, you'll see that I have it broken there into 1-14 and 15-68 because of this. For 14 verses, it's actually titled uh, in the New American Standard. Of course, the titles are, are just suggestive of the theme. They're not uh, uh, inspired. But uh, it's titled the New American Standard Bible, uh, The Blessings on Gerizim. Okay? So uh, if you remember in our study of the eight aspects that all covenants, the, the, the uh, re- original creation or dominion covenant of Adam, the covenant of Noah, the Noahic or societal covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, on through to uh, the, all the way through to the new covenant. All covenants have eight characteristics, and that was, uh, that was the Kingdom of God series, chapter three major biblical themes, I think uh, around the third or fourth week of chapter three, around part C or D. One, so covenants... Um, they all have uh, boundaries. They have laws of the covenants. You must obey, uh, and there are blessings for obeying, and there are curses for disobeying. That's called sanctions, okay? Uh, every parent is familiar with sanctions because uh, the sanction could be if you cross this boundary, you don't get any ice cream, or, if, if, uh, or you might get a spanking, or you might whatever, or you're going to bed without any dinner if you don't eat your broccoli or whatever. That, that wouldn't make any sense. But uh, <laughs> there's, there's sanctions. Uh, every covenant has sanctions. Every family has sanctions. Uh, one, of the, one of the signs that family life is deteriorating and so forth is when there's no boundaries. So um, God in Deuteronomy 28 gives Israel 14 specific verses on what will happen to them throughout their entire history, going hundreds of years forward, if they trust God enough to keep his word and obey him. And then he follows that by 54 verses, uh, so basically a rough ratio of about four to one, of all the things that will overtake them as, as curses or as chastisements, if they disobey, and that includes the, the being captured, taken captive into foreign land, dispersed among the nations, that includes literally everything that actually did happen to Israel in history and is still happening today. Okay, now Jesus is well aware of this, and so is Matthew when we get into Matthew, so you need to understand this. Mount Gerizim and Mount evil blessings of what will happen to Israel as she will become, if she's a faithful wife to God, a faithful son, if she, all the metaphors, if she's uh, 
the true vine and in all the different metaphors of Israel, if Israel stays faithful to her covenant Lord, uh, she will be blessed. Now, this is true in the Christian life uh, to the T. If she is unfaithful, one of the things that all Christians need to come to grips with is the only way you can sin is to go through a mental deception process first where you where you basically say the consequences won't catch up with you. And that's why the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and fools despise wisdom and knowledge because you have to become foolish to believe you can just do whatever you want and it won't turn out bad. So... Um, I was a couple of three months ago, I was coming home from uh, doing some errands for the church over in Fairfield Commons area, and I was coming down Kemp, and I uh, had disregard for the speed law, and uh, I paid the consequences, $140 worth. Hadn't had a ticket for years. I was not exactly, uh, didn't relate to it in a very uh, godly spiritual way. I was not exactly blessed. And uh, nor did I act like I was being blessed because I was like, what? I haven't had a ticket in 20 years. Uh, but I uh, wasn't paying attention and was driving too fast. So there's, there's going to be sanctions. And what we all, part of our fallen nature that we all are trying to overcome is basically believing that the sanctions aren't going to be that bad. And we're going to get away with it. So, as we get into what we're going to do is look at 10 uses of mountains by Jesus as Matthew describes them. All right, that's what we're going to get into today. Now, just uh, in, in this Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, what I want you to see is this is a, uh, like everything in the Old Covenant, this is a foreshadowing of a much greater mountain event that's, that happens in the book of Matthew and is also in Mark and Luke. Everyone following me so far? Now, in Matthew, I, I really wish I had time to do like a whole message just on an overview of Matthew. Matthew is written by Levi, the tax gatherer. Of course, uh, Levi becomes Matthew because God, when he calls people, he changes their identity, meaning he changes their name. So uh, Simon becomes Peter, or Cephas becomes Peter, and, and so forth. Um, Abram becomes Abraham, Sarai becomes Sarah. Uh, God changes people's names when he gives, makes them a new creation often. And uh, Levi, the tax gatherer, becomes Matthew. Because what a tax gatherer was, if you know your history, you uh, would know about Vichy, France, in uh, the 19, first half of the 1940s in France. After the Germans uh, blitzkrieg ran over France in, in merely two weeks, the Germans set up a puppet government of actual French people who sold out to the Germans for, for power and money, uh, kind of like our government today. Um, so sellouts for power and money um, that, uh, that basically were traitors to the people. And, of course, there was also the free French, the de Gaulle's troops that were that were rescued on the beaches by the British and were waiting their turn to get back into France and, and uh, were part of the D-Day invasion and so forth. And there was the French underground of loyalist people who resisted the Germans. But there was always, there's always going to be a certain number of sellouts. And what, the, what a tax gatherer was, 
was a tax gatherer was a traitor. He was uh, cheating, collecting more taxes than he needed to become wealthy and to line his pockets at the expense of his own people. So that's why the Bible actually lists tax gatherers as the worst kind of sinner there is, more than drug dealers, prostitutes, uh, whatever. Tax gatherers are the worst sinners there are because they're completely disloyal. Well, God takes your worst sin and makes it his greatest righteousness. So Matthew writes the greatest love letter that's ever been written to Israel. The most important book of the Bible from a Jewish perspective is Matthew. Because Matthew is God's final covenant lawsuit against Israel. It's Jesus declaring all the sanctions that Moses promised, all the sanctions that the prophets prophesied, all the uh, the, the Babylonian captivity of, of 722 B.C., the uh, uh, Judean captivity of 586 B.C., the, the conquering of Israel by Alexander the Great in approximately 333 B.C., uh, and dispersing the Jews further, the, uh, the conquering by the Romans in around 131, uh, it might have been a little earlier than that, there, thereabouts, uh, B.C., all of these were just the first kind of labor pains of the great and final uh, judgment upon Israel, where he says, Jesus says, I will take the kingdom in Matthew 22 away from you and give it to the new uh, people producing the fruit of it. In Matthew 16, he says, I will build my ecclesia, my called out assembly. And that's in contradistinction to Moses' called out assembly, because he's saying, like he said in Matthew 23, uh, Matthew 21 and 20 through 23 is, is, uh, um, is the, uh, the, the great, the, kind of the final lawsuit where Jesus sums up for three chapters everything every prophet from Abel to Zechariah had said in terms of the sanctions that would come against Israel. He repeats them all intensely, and he ends by crying over Jerusalem. In, Genesis, in Matthew 23, 37 through 39, he, he holds out his hands from the mountain over the city, and he says, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather you under my wings like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you will not have it. So behold, your house, speaking of the temple and the whole temple system uh, that, that arose in, in the covenant of Moses and in the time of David and so forth, uh, behold, your temple. Now, two, er, two chapters earlier, he said, my house, regarding the when he was chasing the money changers out of the court of the Gentiles and so forth, he says, my house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations. But now at the end of this great three chapters of listing the sanctions, basically echoing Deuteronomy 28, he says, your house, he disowns it, is left to you desolate. Now, if you look at what's called the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Covenant Scriptures, the word desolate is the word for Ichabod. Remember who Ichabod was? After, after uh, Eli's unfaithful sons, uh, went into battle, Hopni and Phineas, and they were killed in the battle. 
and was it Hopney's uh, wife that, uh, as she was having a baby, and they tell her, uh, your 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 husband, the you know the sons of Eli have been killed on the uh, in the battle, and the Philistines have taken the Ark of the Covenant, foreshadowing of the church, representative of the presence of God, where the where the law and the, and the or Aaron's rod that buds dwells, and and so forth. The um, the Philistines have taken the ark of God. The presence of God has left Israel. And um, Eli hears the news and he falls over dead, you know, falls over and breaks his neck and dies. And his, and his daughter-in-law gives birth, or grant, yeah, daughter-in-law, gives birth to a baby boy and she names him. She names him Ichabod which means the glory has departed Israel. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying at the end of Matthew 21 through 23. Um, he, he says, your house is left to you, Ichabod. There's, I'm not going to dwell there anymore. I don't dwell there anymore. I don't own it. I, don't, I disown it. I have nothing to do with Israel ever again. These uh, modern ideas that God's going to restore Israel and the temple system and all the stuff that was invented in the 1830s by a cult in Ohio called the Millerites and was picked up by evangelical Christians in the 1890s and 95% of Bible-believing Christians believe today is a completely modern idea, as modern as evolution and as modern as higher criticism and so forth. It was never the understanding of the church, and it's a total twisting of what the, what the text means. And then the disciples in Matthew 24 come up to Jesus and they point out, look at these wonderful temple buildings. What are, what are you saying? I'm, your house was left to you desolate. When will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? That is not your second coming, but you're coming in this kind of judgment on Israel. And he says, uh, you see these buildings? Not one stone will be left on another. The, the armies of Rome will surround this city and, and destroy it. Which was and he says that this generation will not pass away till all this is done, and that happened in 70 A.D. Now, due to uh, lack of documentation, no one knows for sure whether Jesus died in 30 A.D. or 33 A.D. Those are the only two years that Passover works out with all the other events we know of. But it's but 30 A.D. is 40 years from 70 A.D. In is one biblical generation. So he, Jesus says, this generation will not pass away till all these things are fulfilled. Everything he's talking about is we're going to look on the Mount Olivet Discord. So Matthew presents Jesus the king, but he presents Jesus the true king. All the, all the Davidic king, kings of Israel and of Judah were just a foreshadowing of the king of the Jews. And he's not called the king of Israel only. He's called the king's, king of the Jews, that is, of the southern kingdom. He's called the kingdom of Judah. He's the true king, and he's the true lawgiver, as we'll see in the Sermon on the Mountain today. He's the true law fulfiller. All Israel's history, they tried to approach the law as if they could do it by their own self-righteousness and their own efforts which only leads to what most people think that is so rampant in Christianity today, 
that the average Christian or the average non-Christian thinks of Christians. They, here's what they say about Bible-believing Christians. They say a fundamentalist is someone who loves God and hates people. And unfortunately, it's because when you approach righteousness as if it's by your own efforts, you will have two conflicting things going on in your life all the time. One is you'll be self-righteous. And therefore, you'll be too harsh and too critical upon all the sinners because you won't see yourself as a worse sinner than everyone around you. You know you're starting to make progress and growth in Christ when you believe that maybe Paul was wrong when he said he was the chief of the sinners. Maybe it's me. (laughs) Not that the Bible could be wrong. I don't want to argue with that with Paul. I'm sure he could beat me in any kind of argument about anything. He could probably take either side and win. But uh, uh, I'm just saying that you should have the nagging suspicion that maybe you're the chief, chiefest among the sinners. And if you do, when people do gross sins, you, that doesn't mean you'll say, oh, it's okay, go ahead and commit adultery and steal and, and be blasphemous and arrogant and, and so forth. No, but you, you, you'll lovingly correct them with grace, Galatians 6.1, If anyone's caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself or reminding yourself, lest you too be tempted. Reminding yourself there, but by the grace of God go I. Um, So you don't, like when someone says, well, yeah, I just wanted to confess that I killed seven people this week and cheated on my way three times, you'd you'd be, you get past going, what? You'll just go, hmm, love you, brother. <laughs> but let's, we just got to speak a little admonishment or correction in this situation for you because I love you. <laughs> and you're not, and you can't get away with these things. There will be sanctions. Okay, so you get, I hope you get all that. So Jesus, uh, Matthew presents Jesus as not only the ultimate prophet, the final prophet, but he's the sum of all the prophets as he says that the blood of all the righteous prophets will come upon this generation from Abel, uh, the very first prophet, to Zechariah, a prophet who hadn't even come yet, who perished in the the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus is saying, I am their message in in the flesh. I'm I'm the word of the prophets incarnate. And I'm bringing the covenant lawsuit of all the prophets against Israel. The prophets don't like these all these TV shows that, you know, take random verses and say it's Russia and, it's, and all kind of nutty stuff. The prophets call Israel back to faithfulness to her covenant husband and warn her of, lovingly warn her of the sanctions that will come about. So Jesus is not only the, the last and final prophet, but he's the summation of all the prophets. And, of course, Jesus is the great high priest who offers the one true sacrifice that all the Lamb of God in Exodus 12, all the way to the sacrificial system of Leviticus, the reason there are seven different kinds of sacrifices is it's foreshadowing that none of these sacrifices could ever add up to the one complete sacrifice, the Lord Jesus himself. He's, Jesus is our great high priest. 
So Matthew, that's kind of a summation of Matthew. Matthew is the most biblical of all the books. Matthew is the whole Old Testament in a book, and it's the whole New Testament in a book. And then the re- there was a reason why the church fathers in the first five centuries put Matthew first. Today, I know it's very, very uh, popular to tell people they should read John first and so forth, um, as if the wisdom of modern times is greater than the wisdom of the ages. But read Matthew first. Start the Bible with Matthew. And then read the whole New Testament and the whole Old Testament and do it again and again till they all converge in Matthew in your thinking. So let's you just look at this word picture idea, how Matthew uses it for the rest of our remaining time. All right. Now, we're going to hopefully get through 10 of them, so I'm going to have to be quick. The final temptation. So the devil took Jesus. By the way, I left the asterisks in there because the asterisks mean uh, like a present perfect ongoing test. I don't remember Greek enough to know what that means, if it's like present perfect or aorist or whatever. But again, again, the devil, it means taking him. It puts you in the present story. And showing him all the kingdoms of the glory, he kind of showing him, he shows him. Then Jesus said, saying, says, go get behind me, Satan is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil leaving left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Okay, now, notice they're always by the verbs to help you understand that the verb is trying to put you in the story. Guess where this happens? It happens on a mountain. The last, Matthew puts... Uh, the temptations in a different order than Luke. And the last one he puts is on a mountain for a reason. And it's basically the antithesis of what Abraham went through and what Moses went through when they looked out and saw the land that they weren't going to possess in their lifetime. And that land was representative, uh, as we, as John has taught us never a number of times, of the whole world. Jesus is going to inherit the whole world. And Satan is offering him a shortcut to that, that would avoid the cross. And he rebukes Satan and worships God only. Uh, So basically in this temptation, Jesus is being the final Adam who blew it on the mountain of Edom. But Jesus Jesus overcomes the temptation on the mountain. Abraham... And Moses never got to see the mountain. David took the city of Jerusalem, which is surrounded as the mountain, Psalm 125.2, as the mountain surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. Uh, Jesus is, is in this particular uh, Matthew 4 on the mountain. He is, he is fulfilling all, as, as John did, did a great job of when he took us through with his 15-part, uh, actually 16 because there's part zero, series a few years back that if you haven't heard, you really need to hear because it'll help you start to understand how to read the Old Testament better. Um, as he took us through that, he showed us how every foreshadowing and type of Christ ultimately failed because they were fallen sinful men like us. And so Jesus overcomes Satan in the wilderness. And beyond overcoming him in the sense of not falling to temptation like Adam, actually going on to inherit, which Abraham, and, and he didn't fall into sin like David and so forth. Uh, what is really happening here is the fulfillment of Genesis 3, where uh, the, 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 God will put enmity between the woman's seed and the serpent, 
and the woman's seed will crush him on the head. Remember Genesis 3.15 called the proto-evangel. And uh, the serpent will bruise him on the heel, speaking of the fact that, he, that Jesus died and so forth. But Jesus crushes Satan in a series of stomps. It's like, have you ever had, had to kill, uh, <laughs> I don't think it, you can ask John downstairs, or, what was it, a possum you had to kill one time, or a raccoon or something? Possum. And uh, uh, the, the poor possum got hit by a car and was kind of squealing in the street, and John thought he put it out as ministry, but he didn't have the right tools. Misery, misery, Missouri is out of his Missouri. <laughs> but, uh, and so he's taking a shovel to the poor possum, but it didn't go so well. He had to smash it and smash it. Smash. He finally got the head cut off. And that's really what Jesus is doing all through the book of Matthew. In the, in the temptation, he crushes the head of Satan for the first time. When he sends out the disciples and they come back rejoicing because they saw, uh, the, because they cast out demons and had power over the demons, he said, I beheld Satan fall to heaven like lightning. That wasn't some Genesis 1 thing. This was what he saw right then. He was crushing Lucifer. And he crushed him finally in, in his death, burial, and resurrection. And it all starts on the mountain. So that mountain of temptation is Mount Eden. Uh, it, it's, it's all the mountains. Let's go on to the Sermon on the Mount, because I'm going to run out of time as usual. Um, I wish I could teach 90 minutes. That's the old days. Oh, well, now gone forever. Uh, the Sermon on the Mountain is the quintessential pattern of the kingdom. It's where true covenant discipleship is taught. The church has long held since the first century. Now, it's become popular in modern-day dispensationalism to say the Sermon on the Mount is such high standards that it must be for after Jesus comes back. That's nonsense. The Sermon on the Mount is the quintessential, that is the necessary uh, pattern of what the kingdom of God is. The Sermon on the Mount is uh, Eden, Ararat, Nebo, Gerizim, Moriah, Sinai, which is also Horeb, uh, where, where the burning bush came to, to Moses. Jerusalem, also known as Zion. It's all this in one. And there's, it, it, there's, there's a reason why he did it on a mountain. Because he's purposely fulfilling the symbolism of all those things at once. Think it through. He's restoring man to what man was supposed to do in the dominion covenant in Eden. And from there, just like mankind was to go forth through the four rivers and fill the earth with God's glory, so the disciples of Jesus, as they become like him, as they enter into the Beatitudes and become a new kind of humanity, that's the, one of the problems with that we face as Christians, is we want to run off and save the world without going deep enough and becoming a new humanity first. You will reproduce who you are. So the number one thing you can do for your children and for, for uh, your brothers and sisters or to save the world is let Jesus save you. We've met the enemy, and he is us. You know, people want to save the world, but the first step to it is not just even understanding the world, but letting it all become out of you. God has to take Egypt out of the Israelites in us 
before we can go liberate people from Egypt. That's why uh, this element of discipleship and quality and holiness and integrity and covenant faithfulness and learning to walk together in community and learning how to walk in the light. Uh, you know, if you walk in darkness, if you've got stuff going on in your life that you haven't opened up to the Lord and to his leadership in your life and so forth, you're walking according to the principles of Satan and you will be deceived. Every young guy thinks he can go off and do this and this and that without any counsel, and in the end, you'll just pay a big price for it. All right, so Matthew 5, he goes up on the mountain, and notice who he talks to. His disciples come to him, and he teaches them. Matthew 5 is not for the world. Matthew 5 is for the followers of Christ. If you've if, if you've received Jesus Christ in a biblical sense, not just pray to sinner's prayer to get your forgiveness and, and punch a ticket to heaven, but if you basically have said, Jesus, come in, I want to be your follower, make me your follower, give me a new, make me a new creation, a new humanity that, that you were and are, live your resurrected life through me, that's what it means to be converted and become a Christian. I, to, to begin to have a passion to love God, to know God, to live like God, to be a follower of Christ. That Start in Matthew 5, 6 and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. All right, boy, I might have to do two weeks on this. Uh, new humanity is in the Beatitudes, new Jerusalem, the city set on the hill. What is a hill? A hill is a, a little mountain, right? And by the way, the city of Jerusalem, which he's speaking of because the church is the new Jerusalem, Jerusalem is actually on a hill on a mountain. <laughs> uh, so when he says you're a city set on the hill, he's saying you're a city set on a mountain, on the hill on the mountain. And he's talking about Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2 through 4, when he says it'll come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be raised above all the mountains. That's why uh, the Mount Olivet Discourse later, hopefully we get that far today. Uh, and he's basically... Uh, Jesus is saying to, to, if you become a new humanity, you will be the light of the world. You will be a city set on the hill that cannot be hidden. You can't do that by yourself, by the way. Uh, Micah 4, 1 through 4 is an exact quote of that, a city set on the hill. Uh, it'll come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be raised above the mountains and all the nations, all the nations, want to hear eschatology? All the nations will stream to it. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and the peoples will come and say, teach us the ways of your God. Jesus will come back. Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He'll come back when the church is setting free every tribe, tongue, nation, city, and place on the planet. And Christianity is, just because we see Christianity temporarily shrinking in Western Europe and in the United States, it's exploding everywhere else in the world except Japan. And it will be restored in America, and it will, and it will turn, the church will become Christian again, and it, and it will change the culture again, as it did in the times of Jonathan Edwards and John Wesley and the Great Awakening. Why? Because the Bible says so, not because we're doing anything right. Um, of course, the true Sinai is prophesied and promised. That is, 
what, is, what happened at Sinai, of course, first God appeared in a burning bush to Moses on Horeb, which is Sinai. And God always takes a man and, and he sanctifies and beats the snot out of the man. And the man goes through the school of failure and God's other schools and so forth. And then God uses that man to bring a people. And that people met God at Sinai. And it was a threefold level because uh, Moses was the only one allowed to go up into where the, the smoke and the cloud and the power and the glory of God was. The people had to stay at the base of the mountain. And they had to rope it off so they didn't get too close lest they die. Uh, but he was allowed to take Aaron and Joshua halfway up the mountain. And, just, and it's a picture of the tabernacle became a portable mountain when there was the holy of holies that only the high priest could enter once a year, which Christ has done once and for all for us. And now we can enter too. But in, until Christ died, we could only go into the holy place, the outer court. And then there was the third, the, you know, the, the, well, the holy place and then the outer court. So um, it, Jesus is basically saying, uh, when he says in Matthew 5, 17 through 20, he says, don't think I came to, to, to birth the modern cult called antinomianism. <laughs> uh, uh, paraphrasing. Don't came, think I came to abolish the law, but I came to put it into force. I came to change this crazy thing that's been happening since Exodus 19.5 when the Israelites heard the law, or they were about to hear the law, and they said, all that God says we will do. See, they should have said, nothing that God says are we able to do. We need to become a new humanity. Save us, O Lord. But they began to pursue righteousness, as Paul talks about in Romans 10, uh, without the knowledge of, uh, of grace, and they, and they pursued it as if it was something that you could attain in and of performance-based works, which is where, unfortunately, too many Christians live today, and it gets you nowhere. Then, of course, then uh, Jesus gives case laws, just like, God, just like after Moses was on Sinai, and he, then he came down, and they were worshiping the golden calf, and he crushes the tablets, and he goes back around Exodus 20, 33. He goes back up again and so forth. And then God gives him even more. He gives him case laws. And case laws are, are called statutes and ordinances in most translations. I wish they would call them case laws so that people wouldn't understand what they're talking about because people have a vague idea. Oh, his statutes, his ordinance. Or read Psalm 119. Read all about statutes and ordinances, but change it to like the New English translation does to case law. Because in the case law, you, all lawyers know this, you study how the law is to be applied in practical situations. So Jesus gives us three case laws on the Sermon on the Mountain to illustrate that you can't just do the outward acts of the law, but you have. he wants to create you, change your inner desires and your inner motivations and attitudes, which only he can do. You can only have that when you go up to meet G with Jesus on the mountain. And he changes you. That's why Christians have always said you need daily spiritual disciplines. You have to meet God on the mountain every day. Be otherwise, you'll bring forth the evils of the human heart. But if you, go, if you live in Galatians 2.20 and you encounter Jesus every day, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Out of that, you can walk in the new humanity. You can be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So Jesus says, you heard you're not supposed to lust, case law. 
I said, don't even think about it. Don't even have an attitude of lust. You're not supposed to murder. Don't even have being angry in your heart, etc. Ah, uh, boy, I wish I had so much more time. Uh, he talks about judging. Where you, you can see it. You can go through the uh, Sermon on the Mount for yourself. Up and down the mountain is the next thing that that Matthew uh, illustrates. Now, it's one of on the Mount of Transfiguration, which we're going to look at in a minute. The the Moses and Elijah are there representing the law and the prophets, and Jesus. Uh, the the glory cloud is on the mountain, like on Sinai, and. Uh, and God speaks out of the cloud and says, this is my beloved son, listen to him, which, me, which is God saying, this is the prophet that Moses told you would come. He, Moses said, there will be a prophet that will come and you will listen to him. You, and, and anyone who doesn't listen to him, I will require it of him. That's what happens on the Mount of Transfiguration. But guess what? They don't, Peter misunderstanding as we all do when we're having glorious times of worship in the church and so forth. Most Christians leave their glorious times in the church walls. Okay, but so Peter says, hey, let me build three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. This is awesome. The glory of God, God speaking. Let's just live here. <laughs> and Jesus says, no, we got to go down the mountain. And there's two stages. As they go down the mountain, on the way down, he says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of wicked men and crucified. Second time, he starts to, remember the first time was on the mountain. After, G, uh, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. So uh, anyway, on the way down, he tells, them, he tells them about his death. Then they get to the bottom, right? And remember the disciples who had already been sent out in Matthew 10 and cast demons out of hundreds of people. Can't get one demon out of one kid. And Jesus, Jesus engages that father, and, and, he, and the, he says, uh, if, the, the father says, if you can, help me. And Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And the guy gives a great response. You should always give this response to God. I do believe, but help my unbelief. And so Jesus casts the demons out and so forth. And that's exactly the Christian life up and down the mountain. As you look in Matthew here, uh, when Jesus came down from the mountain in Matthew 8, he heals, in Matthew 8 and 9 are a series of six or seven major healings and even crowds casting out demons and healing them after he spent time on the mountain, on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 14, 23, he sent the crowds away and he went up by the mountain to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. You've got to do that. Uh, he left the mountain to search for lost sheep, Matthew 18, 12. So then Peter's confession is Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi is built on a mountain. It's the city of Herod in an ancient, um, after, Her after Alexander the Great conquered that area, he changed the name of the city to, to uh, Panania, which uh, Pan is the Greek word for all the gods. And he... Um, and it became like a, a center of, uh, of polytheism, and it became a, a center of rulership for the, both the Greeks and then eventually the Romans. And the Romans ruled through their puppet king, King Herod the Great, and his descendants from, uh, uh, from Caesarea Philippi. And it's not even in uh, Israel, Galilee proper, 
So Jesus, there's no way he went there by accident. He went there to go to the foot of the mountain. He didn't enter the city, very symbolic. He stood at the gates of the city, and he said, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're Moses, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. And he said, who do you say that I am? You know, when I'm leading someone to Christ, I always start with, let's read the book of Matthew, and let's center on the question, who do you say that Jesus is? So, uh, Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, and so forth. So he's saying, Alexander the Great, all the Caesars and their cult of emperor worship, Herod the Great, all of these people are nothing. I'm the Christ, the son of the living God, the king of the kings and the Lord of the lords, which actually means the king of those who would be king and the lords of those who would be Lord. That's actually how the early Christians meant it. They're all pretenders. They're all fools. They're all rejoicing in the power of man. As Jesus said to Pilate, if, if it, you would have no authority over me unless it had been granted to you by my father. Wow. Uh, I guess I'll probably uh, do a second week on, because we're at uh, Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi. We're at four out of the ten. And it'll probably be worth doing another week. This is good stuff. So this is how you read the Bible. And this requires you to read the whole Bible and look for major themes, which is what we covered in, in chapter 3. We looked at 12 major themes of the whole Bible. And now we're looking at major word pictures of the whole Bible. And mountains are a major word picture of the whole Bible. Matthew uses mountains as symbolism to teach us some of the major points of Christ 10 times. Guess what? Matthew... One of the early disciples, the fifth disciple, Levi, talked about in Luke chapter 5 and Matthew, I don't know, 11 or something like that. Matthew was an eyewitness, and actually, so what we're talking about is how Jesus used mountains. Jesus was not unaware of what he was doing when he did all the things. We're going to see some greater things next week that he did from Mount Olivet and so forth.